Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time. And one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with T.J. Newman, author of the novel Drowning. I used to take my thumb and cover the first name of any author that had my last name, Newman, as I was shelving the book. So then I felt like I was shelving my own book. We'll be back with T.J. Newman after these essential words. So June 2023 marks the 10-year anniversary of First Draft. The first episode aired on June 10th, 2013. And if the person I am today told my younger self that I'd be nearly 450 episodes deep into this show in 10 years, I would have laughed at my future self. But alas, here we are. And how did we get here? At what I would estimate is 9,000 hours of work I've put into this podcast. That's reading, researching, interviewing, editing, arranging the guests. I am the entire staff. And I guess the answer is, how did we get to 9,000 hours? Is a mixture of insanity and blind but ferocious dedication to sharing conversations about craft and literature. This isn't AI, folks. This is weekends where I sit and read and so many things in my life that get fully ignored for this endeavor. And I honestly consider it a gift to the world. It's a place where my passion and I hope some amount of finesse and skill marry together to offer this conversation you're about to hear directly to you in the intimate way that audio works. And if you get anything out of this episode or the hundreds that came before, or hopefully the hundreds that will come next, I am asking you in the most honest and authentic way I know how to please support this show. While I love making it and talking to authors and the entire endeavor fills me up, it does not pay the bills. And if we want to support art in this world and conversations about art and lift the curtain up and really talk about how art gets made, well, your support will help keep this show alive. It's here today because of listeners who became supporters. And that's the truth. So I'm asking you to bolster this rich dialogue, this juicy material with financial support. It's not easy to do, but sticking with this for 10 years wasn't easy to do either. And it's not going to be easy in the future. But if nothing else, it's reliable and consistent. With every episode, I lean into the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I think about them as I create this show, and I hope you can feel them in the content. I simply cannot take this time to create First Draft without your support. Please join me on this journey by becoming a donating member to the First Draft community. You can support the show today at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate on a monthly or annual level. As a thank you to my patrons, you receive access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it to the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, so you won't have to hear this again, and writing tips from my guests. 
Again, you can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash first draft writers. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash first draft writers. Please stay tuned at the end of the interview. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. Thank you for your listening support. And thank you for being here with me today, right here in this moment. And on to the 400-something episode. My interview today is with author T.J. Newman. Her first novel, Falling, debuted at number two on the New York Times bestseller list and was named a Best Book of the Year by USA Today, Esquire, and Amazon, among others. Falling will soon be a major motion picture. Newman is a former bookseller and flight attendant. Her new novel is a thriller called Drowning and tells the story of Flight 1421, which crashes into the Pacific Ocean six minutes after taking off from Honolulu. During the evacuation, the engine explodes and the plane is flooded. As passengers scramble off the plane, 12 people stay on board, close the door, and sink about 200 feet down, landing on an ocean shelf. Among the dozen stranded passengers are Will Kent and his 11-year-old daughter, Shannon, who are fighting for their lives. Above the surface, Will's soon-to-be ex-wife, Chris, who is a professional diver, is poised to save her family. As the plane teeters on the unstable shelf, Chris works to save the survivors before the ground beneath them falters and the plane dives deep into the abyss. We began the discussion with T.J. Newman sharing about her childhood interest in reading and writing. I've been a voracious reader my whole life. I grew up across the street from the library. Changing Hands Bookstore was up the street as well. I grew up just reading constantly. I was that kid that when I got in trouble, my books got taken away. That was my punishment. So that was a kid that I uh, grew up as. And I wrote my whole life, my whole childhood as well, just little stories that I would think of and come up with. So that was my youth. I grew up playing make-believe in my head, right? Coming up with stories and, and writing them down. And then how did you get into book selling and how long did you do that? So I got into book selling after I tried and failed to pursue my first uh, professional creative pursuit, which was theater. I grew up reading and writing and also doing theater. And I studied uh, musical theater in college. And after I got my degree, I moved to New York because, well, that's what you do with a degree in musical theater. And since we're not talking about what my next Broadway show is, you can assume how well that went, uh, which is to say not at all. Um, I did that for a few years and then moved home, moved back to Phoenix, uh, moved back in with my parents. Then I'm doing the whole, you know, mid-20s, living in my childhood bedroom, sleeping in my little twin bed. What do I do with my life now that I have a degree in musical theater and the whole musical theater community has just told me I'm not going to cut it. What do I do? And that was when my mom suggested that I get a job at Changing Hands, the local indie bookstore up the street. And so I applied and I got a job. And that period of time when I was working at Changing Hands, that was when my dream of being a published writer transformed into a concrete goal, right? Like I used to, I used to take my thumb and cover the first name of any author that had my last name, Newman, as I was shelving the book. So then I felt like I was shelving my own book because being there in the store, let me be back in the world that I love, right? A world of stories and being surrounded by people who love stories and want to talk about stories. And it let me be creative again without the risk that I had in New York, which is very public, right? You tell all your friends and family, oh, I'm going to New York, I'm going to fulfill my dreams. And then everyone says, well, how'd it go? And then you say, not well, not at all. It's it was embarrassing and it and it stung. So when I started writing again, when I was working at Changing Hands, I didn't tell anybody. I would I would come home and I'd go to my room and I would write in secret because 
I felt like I'd already used my, you know, my quota of public creative risk taking. And so I started writing in private and that period of time, like I said, that, that was the first step getting to this point, getting to this point in, in where I am now. So you mentioned feeling embarrassed, but I, I was curious more about, yeah, like what that felt like on a deep level to come home from New York and if working at the bookstore was some kind of solace for whatever you were feeling. It absolutely was. It was it was where I fully accepted that I'm a creative person and I'm a storyteller and I need to be involved with stories in one way, shape or another. And there was just no way around that. If New York wasn't going to work in in pursuing theater, then I was going to have to figure out something else because it just showed me this is this is who I am. This is what I am. It's hard leaving New York and and sort of abandoning your dreams or so it feels. And it took me a while before I could, you know, sort of accept for myself that I didn't abandon my dreams at all. My dreams just kind of evolved and changed. And that as I evolved and changed, I had to figure out how to still authentically be me and figure out what to do with the natural skill set and talents and the way that my brain works and the way that I see the world, which is in terms of stories, it just evolved. The the way in which I was exploring that evolved from being a theatrical experience to a literary experience. And, And I really look at that time in the bookstore and I think that's when I truly came home on multiple levels, both literally and and figuratively. That's where I reconnected with parts of myself that I had sort of set aside when I was pursuing theater in New York. Um, and I reconnected with that. And I think looking at where it's led me to and where I am now has really um, validated sort of that that inner compass, right? Because at the time, it didn't seem to make sense and it didn't feel... I mean, you know, coming off of New York, that stung, that hurt. I was embarrassed. And then, you know, I'm trying something new again and I'm not doing it well because, you know, you're that's that's so, sort of the nature of of creative work is is you're not putting out good pages initially or not writing great stories initially. But it let me rediscover that part of myself and be okay with failing in sort of that private way. When I didn't tell anybody I was writing, it was like, you can write bad pages because the only person that's reading them is is you. And that's fine. That's fine. It's just you. And that's sort of how I got my coaxed myself back into taking those kind of creative risks again. Is, do you find that there's any crossover between acting and writing? Because I imagine that there's an embodiment that happens. Like there's there's a almost a transformation in your imaginative life, whether you're acting it out with your words in your body or just on, words on the page, where you have to be in the skin of your characters. And I'm curious about someone who's been an actor and a writer, if you if you notice that overlap or what it's like. There's a huge overlap and it's it's the exact same process. You're just on opposite sides of the directive, right? Like as an actor, you're looking at the character and whatever the playwright or the screenwriter writer has, you know, has has given you and has and you're figuring out, well, what does this character want? What does this character need? And all the information is there. It's just up to you to figure it out and then internalize it and embody it as the actor to channel that through you. It's the exact same thing for a writer with a character. You're just on the flip side of that. You're the one dictating those things. It's not interpreting it. You're you're dictating it. And so that was really interesting. And I feel I do feel like the the acting experience did come into play because I was constantly looking at it from that that point of, well, what is this character's objective? What what are the beats of this scene? All of the same, you know, shorthand that I would think as an actor looking at a scene, you do, you know, as a as a writer looking at what what that should be and how to break that, how to break that down. And it was kind of fun too. And I kind of made the connection of the characters also not just thinking of them as the characters, but also I think this is just how my brain works, thinking of someone who would play them. If I'm already thinking of it in terms of some sort of performance, 
then it's like, well, how do I give the the gift to this actor? How do I make this clear so that the actor knows what's going on? And so that the character knows exactly what's, what's going on. Um, yeah, it was, it, it's funny how all of my experiences just seem to somehow dovetail together to, to come to a point where they made sense in writing these books and crafting this, this world. Like I use my musical theater degree every day. I kind of thought, you know, after I graduated and, and didn't, get to do directly that I sort of thought that was it but I'll tell you what I put that musical theater degree to use every single day so you said when you were writing the pages in in private that you were the only one so that the risk was lower when did that risk change when did you know that you were ready to show someone else was there something in the work was there like what had you written through to get to that point I only got to that point after I finished the first draft of my first book, Falling. I wrote that book entirely in secret. I didn't tell anybody that I was doing it. I mean, like not even my family. My family didn't even know I was working on that book. And I essentially only told them because they were close to staging an intervention because it's like, why does Tori never leave her house on her days off? She's constantly saying, no, she can't go out and she just stays in like what's going on. So I basically had to tell them I'm writing, I'm editing. This is what I'm working on. I'm pursuing this. Um, but I only told them sort of at the, at the last minute, once I had a first draft of that book, I gave it to three people, my two best friends and my mom. Um, and I played it very, very close to the best, all the way up to the point that we announced um, that I had a book deal. I remember when when we did go public and say, you know, former flight attendant now is a seven figure deal, seven figure two book deal, and all of a sudden it was everywhere and it blew up and all of my friends and family are, you know, writing me and calling me and saying, oh my God, congratulations, this is so exciting. You wrote a book? Like nobody knew I was doing this. Nobody knew this was something I was pursuing and certainly not at that level. Um, so so it was it was it was a funny trip to sort of see that um to suddenly step into the light, right? Because everything had been done in private. Cause that's again, that's how I made the deal with myself. Each step along the way, I just convinced myself, okay write it for yourself. Then once I had it written, it was like, okay, make it better for yourself. And then once I had it as far as I could take it on my own after enough drafts and drafts and drafts, then I said, you know, well, I, I need an agent because that's what you have to have. Right. So I started um, sending it out after that, but every step along the way, it was just sort of like on a need to know basis of who needed to know that I was, that I was doing this. And that was the only way that I could sort of get past that fear. I believed in this story and I knew that if I could find the way to tell it correctly and if I could find someone who believed in me and believed in what this story could be, then I knew it could really be something. But I did not declare that out loud publicly. That was a very internal um, message to myself as motivation and to keep going um, because when I went to go get an agent to try to find somebody to represent me, um, it did not go well. It did not go well at all. I submitted my manuscript to to 41 different literary agents and all of them rejected me. And it was my 42nd agent that I submitted my work to that was my one and only yes. So then with the book selling and the secret writing, where did the flight attendant stuff come in? Yeah, so so we call it the family business, right? My mom was a flight attendant, my sister was a flight attendant, and when I'm working at the store, an opportunity came up uh, with an airline called Virgin America, and I knew it would be a great fit, and I knew how great the job is and what the benefits are, and so I interviewed and got it, and so I had to leave the store, and I went to San Francisco for training, and... Um, been transferred to LA and I flew for 10 years and I loved it. It was an industry and a group of people that I loved dearly. You can read both of my books and see that they are essentially just a love letter to aviation. I I respect the pilots and flight attendants uh, that I flew with and that, that are flying now. And 
I love bringing that world to people. And it was really cool to be in this world that is so dramatic, right? And and so full of conflict and interesting stories and interesting things. And you combine that with the way I see the world and the way my imagination works, the story ideas just started coming. And when I had the idea for my first book, Falling, that was the moment that I was like, okay, this this is it. This is the story that I need to tell, that I will write and that I will I will take to the very end. Because I again I believed in that story and I knew that if I could figure out the way to tell it right, then it would connect with people. I was curious if within the aviation culture that you and people you worked with if it's like an either or type of thing with people that they can read a book about a plane crash or they cannot read a book about a plane crash. I feel like that is more applicable to passengers, but crew, we spend all our time thinking about crashes. That's exactly how you want us thinking. Pilots and flight attendants are trained to be considering worst case scenarios. We're trained to consider what could go wrong And if it does, what am I going to do about it? What is the protocol? What is the procedure? And then in the unlikely event that something does go wrong, we've done the dress rehearsal. We know the protocol. We know what we're supposed to do. It's a, it's a mental preparedness, right? It's, it's the way that we are trained. We spend a tremendous amount of time looking at prior aviation accidents and incidents to study them and see what, what did the crew do right? What did the crew do wrong? And what is the correct thing to do in a situation like this? That way, again, in the unlikely event that you're faced with a crisis, you know what to do. So with drowning, you know, this is the story of Flight 1421 that left Hawaii and a few minutes after takeoff loses not just power, but loses the engines. There's fires like there's nothing they can do to save themselves and they end up crashing into the ocean and there's some choices to be made by the passengers, which we can talk about. And it, it seemed like one of the most extreme rescue scenarios and crash scenarios where eventually the, the plane went underwater with some people like locked in it. Um, was this a worst case scenario? And what kind of research did you do? It seemed it was probably intense. It was, and it was a worst case scenario. When I had the idea for this book, I was standing in the forward galley on a flight from Hawaii back to the mainland, back to LA. And it was a red eye and everyone was asleep. And I was standing in the forward galley looking out the the small porthole window in the door. And I'm looking out that little window and I'm staring out at, at nothing, right? Like there's nothing out there no city lights, no civilization for miles and hours in every direction. There is nothing but water. And of course, my sick puppy brain starts thinking in terms of a story. And I start thinking, well, what happens if something goes wrong? What happens if we go down out here? How would they find us? How would they save us? How would we save ourselves? And that moment of that realization of just how isolated you are when you fly over water, that was the moment that I went back to when I was figuring out what this story would be. And I took that moment and basically said, well, what would worst case scenario be? If we're ditching, which is the aviation term for an emergency landing on water, we're ditching, how bad can this get? And I kind of landed on plane crashes, sinks people trapped inside. And once underwater, it's teetering on the edge of an undersea cliff, where if it falls off, it falls into the abyss. And that was essentially the worst case scenario that I could come up with. And I started at that point, and I reverse engineered the entire scenario to the beginning to figure out what the conditions would need to be in order to make something like that possible. And so, again, I started studying uh, prior aviation incidents and accidents and ditching, um, the most famous, of course, being the miracle on the Hudson, which is a miracle and is is a fascinating uh, case study that 
I looked at and went, well, yeah, it was a miracle and it's incredible, but what happens if you tweak just a couple of things? What if one or two factors didn't go their way like it did that day? What does it look like at that point? I also looked at uh, United Flight 232, which was a flight from Denver to Chicago, which um, suffered um, complete hydraulic system failure. And essentially at altitude, a wide body aircraft carrying hundreds of people was a dead stick in the air. The pilots had absolutely no way to control the aircraft and it essentially turned into a glider and they managed to navigate that aircraft to a, um, to an airfield and land it. It's a remarkable story um, that is tragic. Um, many lives were lost in that, but it's also a miracle in its own way because about half the people on that plane walked off alive. Um, so I basically took those two examples and sort of studied them and what happened in those complete catastrophic failures um, and then added a few other elements in because I got to tell you, I I had to work exceptionally hard to crash this aircraft in the book. Like planes don't want to crash. They want to stay in the air. They are designed to stay in the air. Everything about how a plane works is, is for the purpose of it flying in the air without issue. So to get to a set of circumstances that made a situation like this possible was exceptionally difficult. And I consulted with um, my phone of pilot friends. That's what I call them, former colleagues of mine that I used to fly with, uh, pilots that I, I would call and say, you know, hey, this is a scenario. So if if I want this to happen, then this would need to happen. And then that would happen resulting in this, correct? And they'd either say, no, not really. You got to do this or yep, that's exactly right. That's how you do it. And then we just go back and forth until I figured out what the conditions would need to be to um, to have this happen. So once the plane is on the water, um, once I help have the pilots help me figure out how to get the plane to crash, once it's ditched, um, I then had to start doing a lot of other research because when it's in the air, it's a plane, right? But when it's on the water, it's a boat, essentially. It's no longer really a plane. It's it's just a vessel holding people on the water. So in, in essence, it's a boat. And then once it sinks, well then it's actually like a submarine. So I had to change my mental framework um, from being in thinking in terms of aeronautics to boats and subs. So as soon as I sort of made that mental jump and realized that actually this is more like akin to a submarine, then it was, well, what would the military do if we had a submarine in distress? How would they rescue submariners from a, a sunken submarine? And so that's when I started doing all the research component there. I got a, um, I got scuba certified, which was really cool because the, the greatest chunk of the book is pertaining to the dive rescue, to rescue the people inside the plane. And I knew that I would not be able to write authentically about something as, um, foreign as breathing underwater, unless I'd actually done it. So I got scuba certified. I talked to Navy personnel. I talked to uh, physics professors, basically anybody who knew the things that I don't. And um, and I tried to learn what needed to uh, be expressed for this for this story to make sense. So much of what you're talking about has to do with the plot and what's happening. And then on the other side, you're holding the characters because I think people really read to find out about our human experience, to find out our emotions. Your main characters are really a family that suffered a loss. You have Will and his daughter Shannon and his wife Chris, and they have a they had a daughter, Annie, who died. And so there is a central loss at the center of this family. But Will and Shannon are on the plane. He's on the plane taking her to camp. So Shannon's eleven, and then they're kind of in the midst of getting separated and divorced because mostly from the loss of their daughter, Annie, they just haven't connected. And it just so happens that Chris is also this expert at underwater um, welding and repairs. And so she is in the water near where the plane is. So there's this tension between Will and the people on the plane that he's with, which is eventually there's 12 people stuck inside 
And then Chris is outside working with people trying to save him. But just wanted to ask you a little bit about character and then bringing people into all of this plot ideas. I realized very early in the process of writing this book that the extraordinary setup, right? Plane crash and explosions and water and fire and it sinks and there's people trapped inside and the air pocket and ah, all that would not sustain anybody for 300 pages. That's just the setup. And if the reader does not care who these 12 people are inside this plane, then this this story is not going to work. And I decided to narrow that focus even more. You have your 12 people who all have their own backstories, who all have their own lives, who in any other story would be the central character. But I chose to focus on a single family that was fractured to begin with going into the story. And I, because I wanted to have multiple layers of rescue, right? It's not just the rescue of bringing these 12 people home and, and bringing these 12 people home to their own families. I wanted to have another layer of that, which was, I wanted to see if we could bring a family back together. Can we bring this family home? Can we bring this family back together? And it was really, really lovely to see um, the response that I've gotten to this this story. People, People will write me all the time and say, I cried so hard. I sobbed throughout this whole book and it feels so good to hear that because I'll tell you what, I sobbed the whole time that I was writing it. I really, really love these characters. And I really rooted for these characters. And it's been really wonderful to see people take to them and to care deeply about whether or not these people inside this plane get out or not. It's been really, really nice to see that that part of the story, which is the point of the story. Again, the setup is just the setup. The point of the story, the beating heart of this story is a rescue mission and and an attempt to bring this this little family back together. I feel like um, one of the things that seemed like it would take a lot of finesse, like when you're writing, I mean, you had 12 characters. I mean, Will and Shannon and Chris are the main characters in this book, but you are managing 12 people on the page. You're like the HR director of these 12 characters in your book. And you have to do like two things. One is you're describing really technical things that are happening. Like the crash scene has so much chaos and you're, and you have to say, and then this, and then this, and this happened and this happened. So you're trying to help your reader visualize these really technical things. And then you're also placing these characters somewhere in space. Like some characters ended up in the water and some inside and describing. So how did you, manage that as the HR director of your characters? With uh, a lot of editing and a lot of difficulty, I, I, I made a conscious choice to front load the setup, right? The first 50 pages or so, the first, I think maybe seven chapters, I think it is, are the crash, the evacuation, the flooding, and the sinking of, of the plane. It is from, I mean, the first sentence of the the story, our protagonist opens his eyes and sees the engine explode. So the tone is set from the first sentence of this is, this is intense, hold on. And I, it took a while, those first 50 pages, I went over and over and over and over and over again before I ever went on to, to the rest of the story. Because until I could figure out a way to get the setup, get these characters, get the stakes, get the setting, the circumstances expressed as clearly and concisely and efficiently and economically as possible, then the rest of the book, we can really dive into who are these these people and what are they about? Because we don't have a tremendous amount of time to go into deep character development on those first 50 pages. So I front-loaded the setup and sort of backloaded the the characters. And it really was like keeping a bunch of spinning plates in the air. 
it, it was hard and I had to go through and there was lots of, you know, tape diagrams to my walls and figuring out what characters where in space at what point in time I, I printed out plain seat maps and I would highlight seats and, and say, you know, this is Will, this is Shannon, Molly's here, Andy's here, Bernadette is here. You know, I would put the different passengers where they were in space and just, I just had to organize it through edit after edit after edit until it was as clear as it could be because there are so many moving parts in that first section of the book and I needed to make it as clear as possible so the reader didn't come overwhelmed and and not understand what was what was going on with the 12 people that you were choosing how did you decide who you wanted them to be like one of them for instance is an unaccompanied minor two of them are 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 jewish one of them has a lot of christian faith one of them is a jerky businessman um, one of them is um, a native Hawaiian. You know, I'm assuming that they were things about these people that you wanted to explore. You know, I always describe when I was a flight attendant as working a flight is sort of like experience in a classic bell curve, right? You sort of get a little bit of everything. And especially the flights that I worked, I traveled from uh, LA to New York, that was my route. I just went back and forth from LA to New York, which are, you know, two of the biggest cities in the country with two of the most diverse populations. And I was always fascinated by the passengers that would board a flight, any given flight. There's there's no common denominator, right? It's come one, come all. It's like being on a city bus in the sky. Everybody's there. You have every every demographic that you can think of. And it's interesting to see how everybody reacts when they're thrown together. And that's what both my books are. The theme sort of of both my books, if there is any sort of theme that carries over, is ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances on the worst day of their lives. And as a flight attendant, I would just sit around and look at the people around me and think, okay, if something goes down, what aspects of their personalities are going to come out? Who's going to be the coward? Who's going to be the hero? Who's going to be the the comedic relief? Who's going to you know break down and and really you know not be cooperative and be actually a worse you know to make things worse? Like I was constantly sort of playing those sorts of games in my head, and I don't know when I was envisioning these twelve characters, they just kind of came out on their own and presented themselves to me. I think I included the unaccompanied minor because I was always a big fear of mine was that we'd have some sort of major incident happen. And if we had a UM on board, I would not only be responsible for the hundreds of people on board this aircraft, someone's child I have signed off on as essentially being under my protection. And that was just a added layer of um, complexity to being a safety and security professional that flight attendants are that always made made me nervous. The thought of trying to evacuate an aircraft and, you know, with my maternal instinct thinking I would want to just protect this child and I'm supposed to protect this child. This child is my duty. And and so I wanted sort of that level of um helplessness and advocacy that had to come in, you know, through the other passengers and through the crew who are taking care of a kid who doesn't have their parents there with them. You know, something that I took away too is like, what does tragedy offer you? Because you have this family that's breaking apart and they have potential there to think about their lives. And you know, not just them, you know, there were other characters too, but because you focus on this family so much and you were, you were talking about that in the beginning that they were really who you were most interested in is like, how can we take tragedy and, and use it for something better than the tragedy itself? I think that's exactly right. And their, their first tragedy that they experienced was an ending. And I think that there's a certain amount of this tragedy being a beginning and, and 
we see that. We see all the characters do that. We focus on their story, you know, for the most part, but how do people, when confronted with mortality, what does it bring out? Does it bring out regret? Does it bring out anger? Does it bring out hope and longing? Is it an ending? Is it a beginning? And I really enjoyed sort of through these characters looking at that final moment and 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 seeing how we all react because that's I mean that's why we read books like that's why we read books in general that's why we read fiction but that's why we read stories like this too survival stories like we want to experience that that moment of hopelessness where it doesn't look like you're going to make it because that's an extreme feeling and what does that bring out and when when we watch the character go through it in a story that is so close to our own lived experience right like like i love reading about you know a big epic story in outer space or an international spy or you know uh, just these big stories with huge dramatic characters they're so fun and i love that i love getting lost in that and experiencing that ride with the characters but i'm not an international spy and i'm not an astronaut and so there's a certain amount of distance between those characters and me that that isn't there when you're reading about characters that are just people on a plane cuz i'm on a plane all the time so are you this is something that we do all the time and when we experience a character's experience that we can put our own lived experience with, it makes it far more intimate. It makes it not just, well, what is this character going to do? It makes it, well, what would I do? And I think that people who've read my books have appreciated that and enjoyed that. And I think that's part of the success is it's a very easy leap to put yourself in the position of these characters and what they're going through and it's all done without the actual physical or mental or psychological or emotional risks that come with facing your own mortality yeah because the truth is we're mortal every single second of our lives but we forget it so easily we forget it so easily and it takes a dramatic moment to remember that and as a flight attendant you know i i experience that moment a lot you can see it on the passenger's face everyone forgets that they are in a metal tube miles up in the air traveling hundreds of miles an hour you forget and everyone takes a nap and they read their book and they watch their movie and they drink their drink and no one thinks about it until the turbulence comes and the second the turbulence hits, everybody snaps to focus. And you can see it because they all look to you as the flight attendant, right? They all look to you to be like, this is normal, right? This is okay. We're going to be okay. And in that moment, that fear on their face, you see them grappling with that because they remember, oh my God, the stakes are really high. If something goes wrong, the margin of error is so thin. And everybody just on an intuitive level understands that. And I watched people flight after flight face that, even if just for a moment, even if it, you know, it smooths out after that and they don't think about it again, they go back to their nap and they're sleeping for that brief moment. You see people wake up and realize, oh my God, I'm mortal. And it's a really, really fascinating moment to observe in someone. Can you tell when you're looking at all the passengers' faces who took a Valium and looks happy as a clam? There's definitely, it's not an even response. Some people are, you know, at a level two. Some people are at a level seven. You know, it's, it's you you can kind of tell who's who's working with what. Um, do you think this will continue to captivate you, this this subject, as a writer? I, I do. Yeah. My third book, I'm already working on my third book and it also is in the aviation world. And, um, I don't think I'll only write 
aviation action thrillers. I do have other story ideas and other stories I want to tell um, that aren't in this world, but right now it feels it feels right. It feels like the space to be writing in right now. One of the things you write about in your acknowledgments is a pretty deep, deep gratitude to, I think, Shane, your agent. He sounds like your your lifeboat, like someone who was there for you every step of the way. And it, it was a very um, passionate thank you to him. And I just wanted to ask you about that. I went through 41 rejections before I found my 42nd. And I kind of, my 42nd, which was my one and only yes. And I don't think I understood at the time what I understand now, which is that it's not just finding an agent to represent you. It's not just having that foot in the door, right? That person who can go to the publisher and say, this is a great story. You should want to publish this book. It's going to do great. It's not that. It's having someone who believes in you. And Shane believes in me more than I believe in myself. And having that kind of presence and that kind of force behind you is a gift that I will never be able to repay. I am so grateful for someone seeing the potential. And the first conversation that we had, the first phone call that we had, I felt it click. And I knew that he saw what I saw, which was the potential of what this story could be and how it could connect with people. And I'm actually grateful for all those 41 rejections. They hurt and they nearly made me quit every single time, but I'm grateful for it because it got me to the one person who would be willing to work as hard as I wanted to work to make this happen. And I'm just, I'm just endlessly grateful for it. Is there anything else you want to say about the novel before I ask you the final questions? I don't think so. This was a really nice conversation about some aspects of it that I really kind of haven't thought about and, and dove quite this deep into. I love these characters. And, it, you know, it's interesting. I'm in the middle of, you know, the publication process. I'm on tour. I'm in different cities and in bookstores and talking about the book. And and the other day I sort of flipped open the book as I was signing someone's book. and I. I sort of saw like a character, right? It was like a scene from the book. Obviously it's a, it's a story, you know, that has characters and we've been talking about this whole time, but I've been so focused on, you know, the tour and things like this that I forgot like, Oh God, the story inside. And it was the first time that I'd really sort of gone back to like those people and, and being with it. And I'm just so proud of this book. And I'm so, I worked so hard on it and I'm, I'm so proud of these characters and the way people have connected with them has really um, meant the world. And I'm, I'm just so grateful for it. Can you share a passage from an author that influences you as a writer? You know, when you, when you had asked for that, the first thing that came to my mind, um, oddly enough, was Shakespeare. <laughs> Because my background in theater um, can all go back to junior high. I feel like a lot of people can say that. They had like one teacher, right? And one class that sort of opened up, well, the world to them. And mine was Mr. Wilson. And it was eighth grade. And it was drama class. And one of the first plays that we read was Henry V. And... It's my favorite Shakespeare and everything kind of changed after, after I read that play. And after we studied that play, I started loving to, you know, analyze texts and, and, and look at stories in a different kind of way. And at the same time, I mean, these types of books that I write are the types of stories I love, which are big, massive, epic action adventure type stories. I grew up in the 90s, like my bread and butter being Michael Crichton, John Grisham. I love Twister, Jurassic Park, Armageddon, all these like big epic underdog. Are they going to make it like those stories are what I love. And in Henry V, 
there's the St. Crispian's Day speech, which is essentially, you know, King Harry, he is rallying the troops before they march into battle, almost assuredly to death. They are outnumbered. They are outflanked. Like the, the odds could not be worse. And this young underdog king is trying to rally the troops into saving the day. And it's essentially a Shakespearean version of like a superhero speech, right? It's it's the president at the end of Independence Day. Today is our Independence Day. It's basically like Shakespeare's version of that. And when I read that for the first time, I remember like getting a lump in my throat and, and f- feeling that same kind of dramatic, you know, inspiration in that way from, from, Henry V that I feel from, you know, Bill Paxton in Twister as he's chasing down a tornado. And I love that idea of just sort of, it's universal throughout time and experience. And, and you can be a king on a battlefield or fighting space aliens and they come down, like it's all the same thing. And I think something clicked in my brain when I read that first time that St. Crispin's Day speech. So I guess that is the long-winded way to say, I guess I'll just read a little bit of that speech, if that's all right. This day is called the Feast of Crispian. He that outlives this day and comes home safe will stand a tiptoe when the day is named and rouse him at the name of Crispian. He that shall live this day and see old age will yearly on the vigil feast his neighbors and say, tomorrow is St. Crispian. Then will he strip his sleeve and show his scars and say, these wounds I had on Crispin's day. Old men forget, yet all shall be forgot, but he'll remember with advantages what feats he did that day. Then shall our names, familiar in his mouth as household words, Harry the King, Bedford and Exeter, Warwick and Talbot, Salisbury and Gloucester, be in their flowing cups freshly remembered. This story shall the good man teach his son, and Crispin Crispian shall ne'er go by from this day to the ending of the world, but we in it shall be remembered. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers, for he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother, be he ne'er so vile. This day shall gentle his condition, and gentlemen in England now abed shall think themselves a curse that they were not here, and hold their manhoods cheap while any speaks that fought with us upon St. Crispin's Day. And I just, I listened to that the first time, and I was ready to race into battle. I'm with you, Harry. I'm I'm with you. And those kinds of moments are what I love. I love seeing humanity being more than they thought they could be. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft or something you really like? I've, I'm going to read a passage from the, the very beginning of Drowning. Um, and it's in the cockpit. It's right before they the plane crashes, essentially. And it's it's the pilots uh, basically talking to air traffic control and coming to terms with the reality that they are at the end of their options and there are no options. And that was hard to write um, because as a crew member, you are constantly looking for your options. You're constant, and that is how all of aviation is, right? It's a it's a industry of redundancies. There are redundancies upon redundancies upon redundancies. There's always got to be another way. And this scene was difficult to write because it is the acceptance of there isn't. We don't know what's we don't know what's going to happen next, but there is no option except this plane is going in the water. And emotionally, that was difficult to write as a as a flight attendant. Um, when you've hit the extent of your training and protocol and there's nothing left, that's a that's a scary moment to uh, accept. And so this is uh, first officer Kit, and she is um, facing that moment for herself. 
Kit could hear muffled sounds coming from the cabin and wondered what the passengers were doing in these final moments. She assumed they were crying, praying, trying to make phone calls, calls to say, I love you. I'm sorry. I forgive you. There were 99 souls back there trying to do what needed to be done before the end. 99 men, women, and children she was responsible for. Air traffic control squawked. Coastal 1421, all runways at all airports are cleared and available. Emergency services are standing by. Kit felt a lump in her throat. ATC understood the situation. They knew the plane couldn't make an airport. ATC knew just as every pilot and controller listening on the radio knew. Flight 1421 was going down. But by stopping all traffic, by turning all attention to them, everyone was saying, you're not alone. Kit cleared her throat. <clears throat> Appreciate that? Unable, we're going to be in the water. The pilot stared at the approaching ocean as the radio crackled with dead air. Kit could imagine the controller looking to his colleagues, knowing this would be the last conversation this flight crew ever had. Roger that, the controller responded. His voice cracked. We, we got you on radar. Coast Guard is standing by for rescue and recovery. There was a pause. Godspeed, 1421. Coastal 1421, good day, Kit said, the traditional sign-off sounding more like a goodbye. Neither pilot spoke. She'd never flown with the captain before this trip. He was fine, but they hadn't really connected. With some guilt, she realized she was glad it was him here now and not a friend. She wondered if he was thinking something similar. All right, Captain Miller said. Kit understood. She pushed a button. A ping rang out in the cabin. When she spoke, her voice was calm, firm. Prepare for impact. Brace, brace, brace. Do you want to say anything else about that? Brace, brace, brace. That's that's all you can do. You just, yeah, hang on and hope for the best. Where do you write? Well, I wrote my first book in the galley of the aircraft on red-eye flights as the passengers uh, slumped. And I wrote this book um, at home, which which was a, uh, a bit of an adjustment um, from that to suddenly be, you know, to have gone from being a full-time working flight attendant who wrote, you know, on flights here and there when I could, you know, have a minute to jot down some pages and, you know, then edit them on my days off to suddenly having the incredible, incredible blessing and good luck of being a full-time writer. Um, I had to sort of uh, discipline myself and figure out ways of structure um, to, to, make my days make sense now that it was sort of just open, uh, the luxury of open time. Um, but the one consistent thing that I found did carry over was I'm a night owl. I write at night. So even though I'm not working red eye flights, I'm up in the middle of the night writing. That's when my brain is a light and that's when the, the stories flow. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I hike. I love to hike um, and I love baseball. I love to go to a, a, a ballpark and watch a game. It's it's meditative to me to sit there. I go by myself, I sit in the upper decks and I just watch and don't talk. And it's it's meditative. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? My mom. How have you dealt with rejection? By just keeping going. It's hard. Uh, I, rejection's tough and you feel it every single time. I don't care how thick your skin gets. You're going to still feel it every single time. I think the way you get better at dealing with rejection is that you just get better at continuing. That's how you beat rejection. I don't, I don't think there's a way that you don't feel it. You just don't let it stop you. That's the way you get better at handling rejection. And what is your favorite word? indelible. TJ, thank you so much for your time. I'm so grateful. Let's say this was a really fun conversation. Thank you for having me on. If you like today's show with TJ Newman, author of the novel Drowning, 
check out my interview with Anne Napolitano on her novel, Dear Edward. We talked about the 2010 plane crash with only one survivor that inspired her novel, writing about grief, and the challenge of writing about a character's life after a major trauma. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 400 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with T.C. Boyle, Alice Elliott-Dark, and Elizabeth Graver. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.